Welcome to Walking Through Worlds, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that we're recording this on, and also the place and space that uh, our guest is also on. So in particular, the Turrbal and the Yuggera people of this land, um, also known as Mianjin or Brisbane, um, we pay our respects to all the elders, past and present, and we acknowledge also the Palawa people, of which the land that uh, our guest Nick Brody is on, uh, down in Tasmania, and um, you know we acknowledge all the First Nations people from Australian Aboriginals to Torres Strait Islanders. So welcome, Nick Brody, our historian, archaeologist, and writer. Um, I know on your bios you quite openly say you're a history nerd. Um, I've read two of your books, and you have quite a number of books. Um, Nick um, is um, the last one, I think, was Under Fire. Is that the last one you released? Yeah, yeah. that's the last one. last one's Under Fire. Um, before that, there was Kosciuszko. There's um, the Vandemonium War, which we're going to talk about, and the popular one, uh, 1787, about pre-European settlement. I love that. Um, you also wrote about a real people's history of our nation called Kin. And uh, did I miss any then? No, that's it. No, you've got the main yeah. ones now. And, and then there's some early ones you did. <laughs> and also we're going to touch on things like the frontier wars, particularly around the book Vandemonium War. So... Welcome, Nick. G'day, Greg. Thanks for having no, me. No, I really look forward to this um, this conversation. Uh, Nick and I haven't had too much to, to do with each other, and I, I stumbled across Nick's work in the library. Um, now, I think I went out and bought the Vandermonium Wars, so I'll be honest, I, I purchased that one. Then I went to the library and I found like 1787. It. <laughs> it jumped out at me, and and uh, hence I'm excited to talk to, to Nick and, and allow our listeners to sort of uh, explore the works that Nick's doing as a historian. But for the listeners, you can sort of give us a bit of an overview of Tasmania. You weren't born there. You came from New South Wales. Um, how long has your family been in Australia? Where did they come from initially? Yeah, okay. So, the, well, the first book, Kin, is uh, essentially the history of Australia as told through my family history. And so I track back into the 1790s with convicts arriving in New South Wales and in broad brushstrokes basically the eastern uh, states of mainland Australia are where my people uh, arrived, settled and, and spread and so that's sort of my background with a passing uh, brief encounter in Tasmania. My, my people are not Tasmanian people in any way shape or form but they were here for a crucial week uh, to see things happening on their way to mm -hmm. mainland. Uh, so I grew up in country New South Wales in a little town called Junee near Wagga Wagga. I then went and studied at Canberra at the ANU and came down here to Tasmania to actually do a PhD in 16th century English law for the regulation of beggary, vagabondage and poor relief in wow. England. And it was while being here and doing that that I got much more interested in Australian history properly, really, if I'm honest. Up until that point, I was very much a, a classical medieval history nerd focused on what was happening mm -hmm. overseas. Uh, but being in Tasmania, it really started to get me interested in the Australian story, the Tasmanian story specifically, but Australia more broadly. And so when I finished the PhD, I transited to writing Australian history, both in a really scholarly way, so writing technical papers 
uh, for fellow historians, but also trying to write those sorts of books that will get out there uh, beyond the ivory towers into the, the laps of the wider reading public. So the Vandermanian Wars, which um, I really got a lot out of that because it, it sort of gives you this very detailed account from different perspectives even, you know, and, and a really deep research into the, the first arrivals and their sort of encounters, their real encounters with First Nations people. Because as I was growing up in Tasmania, you know, we'd go to the Hobart Museum, we'd walk through and see a big uh, mannequin statue of the last of the full-blooded Aboriginals, I think they called it, Truganini. And, you know, a few of my closer uh, First Nations people now tell me that that's a bit of a myth. You know, it's not a true truism anymore. Not in today. There's a lot more um, about the First Nations people who actually were able to escape and sort of live for a, quite comfortably. I'm not sure. Did you research any of that? What happened after Truganini? I've well, really, my entry into this whole Tasmanian history is through what I like to think of as the the problematic master narrative of the Black yeah. Law, and I got really interested in the way that history is told in Tasmania and blatant demonstrable myths and untruths have persisted as ways of telling history. And the first instance of that was actually a, a little study I did of uh, a window in a church in a little town called Buckland on the east coast of, of Tasmania. And I arrived doing this medieval PhD hearing that there was this medieval window in a church in Tasmania. And it's in all the brochures and it's in a couple of the books. And so I thought, well, I've got to check this out. And I did go and have a look. And obviously, as soon as I walked through the door, you can see it's a 19th century window. It's not a medieval <laughs> window. But there is this story that this window was from Battle Abbey in Hastings, which at the time of the dissolution of the monasteries was buried underground and a couple of hundred years later was dug up, transported to Tasmania and installed in this window. And it's so ludicrous. It's, it's, it took me maybe half a day's research to find the original letter from the first priest asking the glaziers in Europe to specifically make that window for his <laughs> church. So we can demonstrate really easily that it's not a medieval window. But I'm, I, I'm fascinated by the way that stories like that in Tasmania really endure. Yes. Despite the wealth of evidence, people choose to keep telling the same old stories no matter how ludicrous they sound. And so having done that and then working in research and teaching, and I was teaching a, a course on uh, frontier conflict in Tasmania at the time in Burnie on the north of the island. And Tasmania was really prominent in the 1990s and early 2000s in the so-called history wars when people argued about what happened in Australia yeah. generally. And it was quite a bitter... Uh, sort of argument. And that's part of what drove me away from Australian history because I thought it was so navel-gazingly yeah. silly in the sense that if you approach the process and the evidence with a professional mindset, you can reach truths. You know, I, d I disagree entirely that the world is entirely perspective. Yeah. You know, perspectives are a way of of juggling the path towards some sort of reasonable assessment of truth and historical truth. And that's what historians are trained to do. And so I just thought, that, well, the Australians are all fixated on arguing about meaning and they don't get into the, the core detail. But once I'd reached that point where I was teaching it, 
And I'd had that experience of undoing a, a really easy to undo myth in, in Tasmanian history, albeit quite local to do with a, a window and a funny story. I used the same processes and started to apply them to Tasmanian frontier mm. history. Because when I asked my students to look for the resources in the footnotes of some of the resources that they were reading, they couldn't find them. There was a particular newspaper which had been cited and I had the students on Trove, the repository of digitized newspapers, which is now at our fingertips. And they could not find the newspaper. They could not find the story. You know, this historian had told a story which was demonstrably untrue in the sense that the evidence they were citing for it did not mm. exist. And so I became interested in how that story endured, where the evidence really was and working out what had really happened. And so with a bit of legwork, I was able to track down the origin of this story, which concerned a, a, a woman defending her hut against Aboriginal attackers by shooting them with a duck gun. And I could track it back through uh, a novel to a manuscript story to an early published account. And that started to get me thinking really about the way that there is this black war master narrative in Tasmania, where people tell strange stories that don't always have a basis in evidence, but by repetition, they, they attract gravitas and, and therefore they get told again and again. And so over a, a number of years, and the Vandemonian War is the biggest expression of that, I have gone deep into the archive to find the actual evidence of what was happening in Tasmania, and but also matching that with a close study of how different sources and stories emerged later and other ones declined. And to give you just the, the broadest way of understanding that, what happened in the 1820s and 1830s in Tasmania was very brutal and the government was very involved in what was happening, directing it and covering it up. A generation later, the descendants and children and older people who had participated in that process started to turn it into a narrative mm. history, much in the same way that people did with uh, World War One in you know, the last 20, 30 yes. years. And so they start to tell stories about it and people start to write histories. And this basically takes place from the 1870s onwards. And so there is this big gap between what the evidence actually said happened and the way people talked about it a generation after the fact. And it's the, that second one, it's that way people talked about it after the fact, which has persisted in this black war narrative. And that narrative is one where basically the conflict was a vague, distant thing happening on the frontier beyond the gaze of government, where mostly nasty convict servant stockmen were attacking Aboriginal people and they were retaliating in it. Eventually, it was out of control. The government couldn't do anything until ultimately they they sent a peacemaker in in the form of George Augustus Robinson and his so-called friendly mission and invited the Aboriginal people to uh, submit themselves to government, in which case they were then taken to, to Waibalina exile in, in the islands. But that's a very nice politicised view of, of the mm. conflict because it basically puts fault on the convicts rather than the settlers and the government. And it makes it seem like the Aboriginal people uh, were reconciled peacefully uh, with the government at the time. Whereas it's anything but the fact, you know, until I looked in the archives, nobody knew that at the same time that George Augustus Robinson was going to the northeast of Tasmania, for instance, the government was arming and equipping 
a team led by an ex-soldier with a promise of reward for capturing Aboriginal people, where the governor actually said that if you kill people during the course of capture, you will still get the reward, you know. So there's a real hammer and anvil thing mm. going on in Van Diemen's Land at that time. It was very brutal. Uh, but that that sort of stuff never makes it into the to the public. No, and also, uh, I think I recall reading in that book that you said they were bringing people, uh, uh, First Nations people, from Sydney town, you know, uh, to come and actually work with the um, settlers. Is, is that right? Did I read that right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. There's this whole complex phenomenon of what I term in the book Aboriginal Auxiliaries, mm. which is a quite a catch-all term because there are different types. Some of the most prominent are what are called, in the language of the time, Sydney yep. natives, which is uh, merely because they come from New mm. South Wales. Uh, they're not necessarily Sydney people yep. at all, uh, but they're mainland Aboriginal people who are coming and assisting John Batman, who's a quite a prominent, notorious uh, mercenary mm. settler of Van Diemen's Land and later Port Phillip District, uh, Melbourne. And so he is uh, using these people as trackers, effectively, to, to help him move through the bush and more effectively hunt down the Aboriginal people that, that he is after. You also have this process whereby when Aboriginal people are captured by the colonial authorities, uh, they will often attach uh, some of these captives to subsequent missions. Some of these are... are uh, slightly older uh, men or women, uh, but often it's children as well. So they've got really kids that they're forcing to go on these missions to help them track uh, fellow Aboriginal mm. people. And you can see some of the, the the tensions of Aboriginal society come out there where where the, the, the settlers and convicts who are on these missions get the distinct impression that they're being given a, a bit of a bum steer by these kids. And I mean, that's a really brave thing to do when mm. you think about it, to take, to take a whole armed colonial unit away from the people that they're hunting. Um, so it's really quite a, quite a mix of, of Aboriginal people involved, you know, in inverted commas on the colonial side. So with the Black Wars, was there a, was there a known um, leader amongst the First Nations people, like a warrior? Were there, were there any sort of written documents around the braveness of them to sort of try to resist this coming of the of the Europeans and the settling? Yeah, there are, sev there are several figures who are quite prominent um, and, and it varies. So these days people often point to Manalagena as a major leader, but that's probably got more to do with the fact that he is the major line of descent and one of those who outlasted mm. others. Yes. Uh, in the period that I was writing about uh, the government is fixed on fixated on the the figure of Yumara, who is a, a difficult sort of character. He he in some ways seems to be playing the government. You know he he submits himself to their uh, capture and and then guides their missions, but scarpers off a couple of times and and just deserts yeah. them. So he's playing the government as much as they think they might be be playing him. Uh, the the brutality of the conflict ultimately shows both sides fighting very fiercely over territory. So in that sense, uh, Aboriginal people, Aboriginal warriors in Tasmania are very bravely fighting for their country. But in some cases, I think that does uh, turn to to replicate the brutality of the colonial 
forces. It, it's, it's cycles of very localized, very heated violence, um, obviously gets out of control almost in a Balkans sort of And way. have you seen that, uh, that living uh, document that that lady produced out of the University of, I think it was Newcastle? Um, and it, it shows you the, the different um, massacres and genocides across Australia um, over a period of 100 years, you know, from the 1820s right up to the 1930s, sort of thing, 110 years. Have you seen it? I'm aware of that, but that lady who's produced that is the one who wrote the article, which I got the students to <laughs> look for the evidence, which they couldn't find. Ah, um, that's so interesting. I have, oh. I have a, 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 um, a cynical yes. eye to that. I think it's, it's not a bad idea, no. but I worry very much about the execution of those sorts of projects. Because if you turn it into an exercise about massacre, as in individual instances of violence, then the threshold of evidence is that much higher. You have to be able to say mm. for sure that this happened or someone else will be able to come across and find evidence to the contrary and prove you wrong. And that gives fuel to the idea that settlement was peaceful. To my mind, it's much more useful to look at the bigger structural issues, as in what the government knew what the government said mm. to do, because an instruction, whether it's carried out or not, tells you a hell of a lot about the way governments were thinking. The test of genocide is not how many people you kill, it's how many people you are willing to kill or intend to kill. And so in that respect, I think those sorts of projects are a double-edged sword. And I've sort of kept myself at a distance from that because of that. And, and this is the interesting thing as part of the, I suppose, the healing, you know, I. For those listeners that don't know, I, I mentioned this to you earlier, that I, I am of um, Tasmanian uh, stock, um, but that occurred through my convict great-great-grandmother six generations ago in 1789. 1789 came out on a, a boat with 225 women. They landed at um, Port Jackson, and obviously at that time they came, it was probably a year after the first fleet, who they were quite... Um, starving. They were starving of food. They sent the boat away and they, they boarded another boat and went to um, Norfolk Island. So they stayed at Norfolk Island until about 1808. And I believe that they came down to Van Diemen's Land. Um, she by then was a free settler. She went with another man, my surname being Dodge. He'd already run off to Hawkesbury um, River, given her three children met another man, and they went back to Hobart Town and started down there um, around Carlton, uh, Port Sorrel, on the eastern shore. And the interesting connection there was in your book, in the Vandemonium Wars, in the back is the mention of Dodge, my surname. And Ralph Dodge was the son of the convict woman, Charlotte Simpson, of which I've written a poem, which is on our podcast series and episodes. Um and I sort of cover in there as a way of acknowledging that he was instructed. And I was trying to piece this together without any documentation, but just sort of, I suppose, trying to piece together what could have occurred. He has no um, knowledge of Britain. He has no connection with you know, the homeland at all. His mother is a convict woman whose who's, uh, father has already run away. There's a new man in her life giving her another five children. He's about 18. 
the government gives him 150 hectares or, you know, a large portion of land to turn into farming. Now, he's probably got no farming skills. He may have picked up a little bit at Norfolk Island where they were growing uh, produce. He's in Tassie. He's in that area around Carlton. And he then, about 10 or 15 years later, he purchased another chunk of land and that property becomes Lagoon Farm, which is quite a, there is a historical society that I've discovered and I, I've tried to reach out to them and I, I'd love to explore this. And he set up Dodgers Ferry. So he would row a boat from that place around Carlton out to Midway Point so that the, you know, the uh, military or the settlers that would go into Hobart Town, it was sort of a halfway point, but saved them going the long way around. You know, it was sort of a way to get across and that became and still is a suburb today called Dodgers Ferry. But I think back, he really had no concept probably of even, um, you know, in terms of he's a white settler, mum's a convict, dad's run off, you know, she's got a new man, a new family, I've been given land, and the government come and say, look, we want to clear the land. Can you come and join us on this um, sort of um, uh, line, the black line, and let's go across and sweep the area for uh, what they call their natives? And he probably said, sure, where do I sign up? You've given me land. I sort of owe the, the queen something in return. Now, in your book, you don't say you, you haven't found evidence that he was part of that particular um, massacre or genocide or, you know, black wars or anything, but he is mentioned in the book. So you've obviously stumbled across him in your paperwork as one of the settlers who is working quite willing with the government. Yeah, well, I could tell you how to find out if he was on that line because one of the... Uh, I think most chilling aspects of of the the general movement, as it was called, was so this this is a, basically the government had increasingly sent out military parties, armed convict field police, and what I call mercenary settlers. So those are settlers who were promised land grants mm. and reward to capture or push Aboriginal people off country. That, that's their the government's ultimate ga- goal is get Aboriginal people off country to facilitate settlement, stop them transiting through what are called the settled districts. And the settled districts are really just called yeah. the settled districts. At the time we're talking about, they're not in any way, shape or form widely Arthur, settled. You know, just places of... Port Arthur doesn't exist oh, at this moment, wow. actually. This is this is the moment that Port Arthur's actually just being settled in, in 1830, mm. that the general movement uh, starts. So the government gets as many soldiers as it can out in the field, as many of these mercenary settlers and, and convict field police and supplements that by these militia getting as many settlers convicts servants as they mm. can to go out and provide supplementary force to this endeavor it's not really a single line that walks across the island what really happens is there's a series of uh, push and reform movements where they drive forward almost as if you're driving cattle or sheep in a, in mm. a big series of, of movements and then after driving through much of the midlands of, of Tas- southern Tasmania, they halt and they basically make a fortified line about 60 kilometres long, which they hold for a couple of weeks to contain Aboriginal people in the peninsula. 
And while they're doing that, they send these secret skirmish parties out in front. And they're the ones who who capture two. And uh, when you look at the, the whole thing, there's a lot of talk about it being a, a, a fiasco and a disaster and didn't achieve its goals and so on. But I think there's, there's probably... Uh, a bit of mythology around that because we have very little documentation for what took place in the largest military operation on Australian soil. We do not know anything about the micro details of the soldiery who are the mainstay of the line. We have the top level instructions basically on a day-to-day level about uh, where to go. And we know that skirmish parties were going out in front. We know that a huge volume of ammunition was being expended at various points, including when the line was being held. And we know that people were shooting at Aboriginal people willy-nilly. We also know that in the entirety of the conflict, there is no real coronial inquest into Aboriginal people when they are killed. So when we do know that Aboriginal people are killed, that often doesn't generate much in the way of a paper trail. So I'm very suspicious of this whole idea that the line was, was a mistake and that it failed to achieve its objectives. If its objectives were to remove Aboriginal people from that country, it was relatively successful in the sense that while the conflict did persist for a couple of years, uh, it, it certainly was in a diminishing way and uh, the number of people captured in the end when, when the conflict was finally brought to a, to a halt were, were very small. And... From that whole operation, while we don't have the details, we don't know, uh, you know, cases where groups of soldiers may have encountered an Aboriginal group and and fired upon them, for instance, uh, what we do have is the administrative aftermath. We have pages and pages and pages of manuscripts which have lists of names and the numbers of rounds of ammunition which were given to them during the re-equipping phase as the reserves came through. And so on those lists we can see the names of individual settlers and their servants who are participating in this on the behalf of government. So in the case of a Dodge, for instance, it would be possible uh, if they're in the right unit for which these these things survive to actually have their names. They're one of the most chilling genealogical, untapped genealogical resources in Australian history, really. We're talking hundreds of names of people, and these names are are names that are still very common in Tasmania. Uh, which is perhaps the reason this resource hasn't really emerged uh, into much public light and discussion. But they are there. They're in the archives. And I think these sort of discussions are about reaching back into that past, acknowledging these things existed. Because I think part of the people that I know, First Nations, um, you know, the, the traditional custodians up here in Queensland in areas I've met, it's more about truth-telling and truth-listening. You know, it's sharing the stories to each other. I mean, we can't change that past. You know, once you, if it's all documented, it's, you know, you can't change what's occurred. It's horrific. We also know, um, as we've explored on our podcast, it it occurred 2,000 years ago with the Romans, you know, invading the Brittany. You know, same, was the same type of uh, activity from the Romans, you know, dominance, governance, you know, clear the land, um, you know, get rid of the language, you know, this is something that humanity tends to do historically, you know, with mm. an oppressor uh, who comes in and wants that land. Um, I, th- I think it's, it's very useful in Australia for people to think in those terms, actually, in terms of the Roman yes. occupations. The, the term colony comes yeah. from colonia, which is the Roman 
soldier settlement. Now, in Van Diemen's Land, for instance, the government very aggressively encouraged former soldiers to settle in Tasmania. And the reason is because you have a ready-made, uh, trained fighting force, should yes. you need it. And they probably came, some of them probably came from the Americas, I assume. There were 13 penal colonies in America at that time. Remember, just before the, the war, um, and they... Britain's focus to resettle a whole new penal colony, um, my understanding is that it could have been anywhere. It just happened that this gentleman, James Cook, had ventured down here and explored and, you know, uncovered this east coast of a, of a continent, which was not known prior to that. And that gets into the 1787, you know, your book 1787. That's phenomenal to go back and trace, what, nearly 300 years of... Euro Eurasian um, sort of venturing around. Look, as an Australian, I went up to Western Australia uh, a couple of years ago, um, you know, caravanning, and we ended Sharks Bay, I think it was, um, and there's a little plaque there in the middle of the road, 1606, um, Dirk Hartog, you know. And I was a bit shocked. I didn't know. My, my wife had done it, uh, had done the history at school, but in my growing up in Tasmania, we never knew that the Dutch um, had sort of made land there in 1606. And I read in your book about 1616 being a, a you know a, a, a real impact time for the Dutch. But then you know going back to Tasmania, you know the Van Diemen's Land and its history, it was already sort of documented through you know Abel Tasman and you know that whole period. So it was a known. Uh, Ireland, but not really sure, I think, how it was connected, and New Zealand and Norfolk Island and all that connection with New South Wales and, you know, that little microcosm of time where New Zealand is part of New South Wales. And I don't think a lot of people understand that even that could have been just another state of Australia, potentially, you know. Yeah, I think we in Australia suffer from a problem of, uh, aggressive historical parochialism uh, and that's what 1787 was was in part about addressing it's about putting Australia back in a wider regional context uh, the I like to think obviously the European voyages were explorers in the sense that from the European perspective they were exploring mm. the world uh, but I think from an Australian perspective it's very handy to talk about them as having encounters it's the encounters with Indigenous people in Australia, New Guinea, New Zealand, uh, that you can use to tell the history of what is happening in this place in a global sense, in that big, broad, macro way. And what happens is, from the 17th century onwards, Australia does have increasing contact with the rest of the world, especially in Northern Australia. And then in Southeastern Australia, in the lead up to British uh, permanent occupation at Port Jackson in 1788, there is this whole process of, of what I referred to as campsite colonialism, you know, rocking up and, and repeatedly coming up to the same spot to use it as, as basically a naval base for British operations in the Pacific. New Zealand is, is the place of uh, where that happens most, but Tasmania to a considerable degree as well is part of that, that world. In a funny way, Port Jackson's the outlier. It's the one which only gets visited once and then permanent occupation takes place. 
and it's it's the beachhead for the invasion of mainland Australia, clearly. But there is this process leading up to that, which I think is really interesting, which shows the imperial powers of Europe familiarising themselves with this region, to an extent familiarising themselves with the people, although when you look at it closely, what you can see is that there's actually a process of uh, prejudice build-up, you might like to think of it, where early descriptions which belong to the 17th century and the 17th century way of the world are very clearly informing the way that people like Cook saw Aboriginal people when he encountered them. Uh, they're vastly different people in terms of place, time and behaviour, but they all sort of get lumped together. And so what you see there is the emergence of this, this notion that all Aboriginal people are the same. And, and that forms during those years before the British have even started that's to arrive. That's where the ignorance, to a so, large degree, of not... I mean, as we discover from Aboriginal people, their languages and their culture was like really coming to Africa or Europe itself. There were so many different cultural uh, rituals and ceremonies that, that differed. You know, Tasmania had no relationship to, you know, the North, as we know, Northern Territory today or Queensland and West Australia, you know, there was a lot of intermingling, we know, you know, of, of different mobs and tribes. But broadly speaking, a lot of them wouldn't have even been aware of a lot of the others in other spaces and places. Yeah, exactly. But the, the, by the time the British arrived, they've got a very firm idea that they're all much the same. And, and that's what they used. They used the power of that to be able to drop uh, one mob into another mob who had no connection there was nothing there was no relationship at all there was no kinship there whatsoever so they could use one possibly to help them um you know move their cause forward you know to clear the land and so on and obviously i when i read about you know the the sheep and cattle being the, the first nations people pretty quickly in certain areas um identify that that's a source of nourishment and economic benefit. That's what the settlers were bringing. So they'd attack them deliberately. So they weren't attacking the settlers per se, but the settlers would take that as a as a, a right to go out and then look for these people, you know, and, and, and then sort of uh, use that as, oh, well, they came and killed our sheep and cattle. Therefore, we have the right to kill their families, you know. Now, Ray Kirkhove um, is a historian up in Queensland, here in southeast Queensland, and he spends most of his time researching the frontier wars here. So I'm going to connect you to, we'll be interviewing Ray at some point. Um, he wrote a book called the, uh, the Battle of One Tree Hill, and it's about um, basically the resistance movement around uh, from Darling Downs up to Gympie, uh, around uh, the Moreton Bay area. And over 3,000 uh, warriors that he's been able to um, sort of acknowledge. And they held off the, uh, the settlers coming up from Brisbane town going north for four years. And I just found that astounding because as he, he was explaining that, think about the Japanese, they entered World War II for about three years, you know, and here were these warriors that were, were, were very strong in their resistance movement. So I think all of these histories are worth for people to explore and if you explore your books um, the Vandemonium War overlay that with what Ray's doing overlay it with a lot of the books that are, are now 
readily available for people to educate themselves and become less uh, tied to the old narrative and start to see the newer narrative, which is who are we as Australians, you know, because all those stories of who we are together weave the national story, you know, and if we just have the European side of the story, we're missing 65,000 plus years of incredible cultural rich history of this continent that we're part of there, you know, that we share. And I think First Nations people that I've spoken to really want that to occur. You know, there's not that sort of, oh, you all need to go and leave the land, you know, you came here and destroyed us. There's none of that. They're like, okay, now, here we are, today, 2021, how do we move this forward? And there's been enough sort of uh, government and institutional recognition of the trauma and the generational trauma and damage that they've done to the First Peoples of the land, you know. Um, you know, so many, Paul Keating, you know, 1992, the Paul Keating Redfern speech acknowledging that they brought the disease and the alcohol and did the damage and the churches that have all acknowledged what they've done through the missionaries and through taking people away and putting them and splitting up families and the stolen generation. There's all that's documented there for people to see, but it's still in a young phase of opening up for everyone to go, you know what, we have to heal it, it's time. These stories must be told. And in America, uh, Ray Kirchhoff was saying, in America, when the American Indians, you know, they've now plotted all the, where a lot of the uh, battles and skirmishes have occurred over there for, what, 200 years. And in Australia, we're only just aware of these skirmishes and starting to get the documentation so that we can actually acknowledge it and even have memorials there um, in the places and spaces for people to understand the two sides of that history, you know, not just a one-sided history. Yeah, I, th I think we're, we are in a really interesting phase and we're in a very early phase. It's easy to think that this has been going on for a long time. One of my bugbears really is that those master narratives persist so firmly in the public consciousness. They're so easy to debunk. They're like a medieval window, which is clearly not a medieval window. And one, you know, the, the Tasmania example that I'll give is you will never hear me refer anymore to the Black War. The idea of the Black War to me is, is bizarre. In New Zealand, they now talk about the New Zealand land wars. They don't talk about mm -hmm. the Māori wars. In South Africa, it's the South African, it's it's the English colonial wars. Or, so it's or reframing, like that. it's, it's reframing the, the words. It's not the Kaffir mm. wars, yeah. Whereas in Australia, we're still stuck to that idea of referring to things like the mm. Black War, the idea that it was the war against mm. the blacks. And it was far more complex than that. And it was part of our broader national history. You know, in Tasmania, if you don't want to call it the Vandemonian War, then call it the Tasmanian yeah. War or, or, or the Midlands yes. War. Uh, pretty much anything other than the Black War would be a step forward. And the same is true on, on in mainland Australia. We need to see these things not just as, you know, little kangaroo fights that take place here and there now and then and we shouldn't see it as a wave of yeah. massacre it's it's a wave of conflict and there are a series of regional conflicts some smaller than others some yeah. huge some last for years some last yeah. for days but until we change the way we think about it as part of our, our history of colonial war and i think that's probably the most useful yeah. term is that these are australia's colonial yes. wars they are the wars which facilitated colonization 
And that's just part of our story, you know. There are different results of that. There can be different perspectives about elements of that. But the thing itself is just a fact. <laughs> it's just a fact of Australian history, which is why in every single book that I've written, at some point or other, I'm dealing with a colonial mm. war. And they're not a frontier war in the sense that they're at the distant mm. front. That's right. You know, the, the term frontier war actually was used in mm. World War I. When we talk about the Western Front and the Eastern Front, that's just a shortened version of the Eastern and Western frontier. Mm. So I think we need to reframe the way we, we talk about these things. It's not just a case of uh, wars between servants and, and Aboriginal people or cycles of violence and, and massacre by settlers. Uh, more often than not, once you start to scratch below the surface, you will see the soldiers there. You will see the police there. You will see the police magistrates there. You will see the structures of government in these mm. conflicts. So it is Aboriginal people defending themselves against a colonial mm. aggressor and a colonial invader. Uh, that's just a fact of history. But so long as we keep using the language of sort of late 19th century antiquarian history, we, we get stuck in that same way of thinking about, about our history. So if there's anything people can do, I think that's, that's the thing to so take So what forward. else can we learn in terms of these narratives that we're stuck in as well, which I, I, I've read a lot of Stan Grant trying to um, suggest different narratives around Australia Day. I mean, he, he wrote a book called Australia Day, you know, very challenging for um, a First Nations person like Stan as a good journalist. To attack it, and I, I yep. read that book, and I came away. You know, the sentiment I got was, "Don't change the date. Change the the knowing and the knowledge." Um, you know, we've got these two divides that occur on the twenty sixth of January. You know, it's survival or invasion day, and I've participated in that uh, this year to see, you know, from the First Nations perspective, you know, the anger that's still building there, and then there's the Australian Day. You know, the, the Europeans that Aussies that come out and put their flag on and, you know, an invasion day, it's around the flag. Writing 1787 was really a good um, sort of, like you were saying, we're getting all caught up about one moment, one day that's not even really a truth in itself, but it is sort of a truth. It's the day this land was annexed, you know, by the... By mm -hmm. the royal family or, you know, on their representatives to take ownership. But it was already happening and it was going to happen anyway, whether it was the British, my understanding, or the French, you know, and or the Portuguese or the Dutch. You know, one of the yeah. aggressors was going to say, hey, we'll take this, thank you very much. It just happened to be the British. It must have been that window of... Uh, of time, you know, that for them it was the right things were aligning for them. They'd been kicked out of the Americas and they needed a new place to bring their um, their convicts, their prisoners, the bad people who are stealing stockings and bread. You know, I think of my great-great-grandmother, her record in the Old Bailey is silk stockings and a silk uh, handkerchief and they have basically no value at all. <laughs> mm. And you wonder if she was actually sent over here to breed anyway as part of the breeding uh, policies, you know. Who knows? <laughs> well, what, I, what I'll say about this, I've done a considerable amount of research on Australia yep. Day, which has not yet borne publication yep. fruit, uh, but we're still going. So what I will say about that is that Australia Day 
is a fascinating insight into an into a country's historical myopia mm. really the significance of australia day demonstrably waxes and wanes over the two centuries after that moment that it ostensibly celebrates in the first decade of colonial settlement first three decades in fact it's it's not an important mm. day at all i'd say the reason that this if you could nail it the single most significant reason 26th of January becomes the day on which the colonisation of Australia is celebrated is because that's the day the Rum Rebellion occurs. <laughs> and so oh my goodness. that's that's the deposition of, of Governor Bly by the military. And so when Lachlan Macquarie rocks up later, he makes a really big song and dance about Australia Day, about the First Fleet. And it's a way of whitewashing the complexities of European history. And so it's from there on that it starts to become a, a day of major celebration. And it's asserting the legitimacy of British government, not so much because of anything that happened in 1788, but because of the, the, the complexities between that and whatever date it's being celebrated on. And I think that dynamic persists now. That's why it's seen as a problematic uh, national yes. day because it's not so much the day yes. itself you know 26 january is just an, any old day in a way uh, and its historical significance is next yes. to nothing the 26th of january 8 1788 yes. is a day in which the ships moved from botany bay to sydney cove and a few of them got out and raised a flag there you know and okay that has a symbolic import for sydney but they'd arrived in botany bay a few yes. days earlier it's not like that was the first the, the start of European mm. colonisation of Australia and the, the formalities of occupation took place mm. after that. So they didn't take place on that day mm. at all anyway. It, it's become symbolically important because of its links mm. to Sydney as much yeah. as anything. But the day itself is, is of relatively minor significance. Uh, and you see later on that different states have sort of arguments mm. about that for, for Victorians and, and Western Australians and Tasmanians until very, relatively recent times. Uh, Australia Day, as in 26th January, was not very significant for them. They looked to their own colonial starting yep. points. So it's it's really as Australia's historical narrative developed and became distilled during the 20th century that that day took on extraordinary significance. You know, you see the same thing happen in 1888 with the centenary, basically because people want to have a centenary mm. celebration. And then in 1988, the same thing happens yep. then. Fascinating. And uh, all I'm going to say is I'm going to keep reading your books and I'm hoping our listeners will continue to do that. I, I've got um, a lot of your books on our um, website. I've put uh, in our Yarn Up page, um, it's all about recommendations. I've got part one recommendations, a whole series of books around uh, Australia, some historical fiction, some um, historical nonfiction. Uh, and I've just put up another one called part two. So I'm going to continue to add to that. So even um, as an author, you know, you think, oh, that would be good for Greg to share. You know, always send me a note and say, look, that's something else to add to that because I'd like it to grow up and be a bit of a resource just looking at all the different perspectives. You know, we'll also have in the migrants' perspective as that evolves. You know, there's some really great history capturing, um, well, all of us, whether new or old, we're all migrants. But, you know, those stories yeah. through, you know, the Vietnamese coming, the Syrians, you know, the Africans, the Congolese, 
you know, and adding all of those stories in. So we get a true picture over time or people can explore it, not just from one lens, but see the three lenses and try to make some sense of it themselves. But I really appreciate you coming on today. Um, now, with our podcast, of course, we uh, are on all the platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, Amazon. We're on YouTube as well. And uh, you can see us at our website, www.walkin3worlds.com.au. You can go to Nick's um, website as well. Um, Nick, what's your domain again? It's actually www.nicholasdeanbrody.com. But if you just Google Nick Brody. Yeah, it comes up beautiful. And there's some really good information that you've got there, great resources. And I'll keep following you. I'm a big fan of yours now. So... You're going to have me. <laughs> You're going to have a Tasmanian following another now new Tasmanian. I'm an old Tasmanian following a new. Um, a lot of my friends up in Queensland have moved to Tassie. Um, you know, and I've got a lot of old friends down there. I was there sort of. My activity was in the seventies. I was in a band and we played at the Rest Point Casino for six months. We had a six month residency there. Yeah, so oh, I was no. very involved uh, in the music scene. A lot of the musicians do know me. The older ones, particularly, um, but. I, I have a – it's funny, your heart is still there, but I've married a Queenslander and I've become a Queenslander, even though I don't follow, follow the sport. But, I, you know, I do love yep. the weather and I love the, the place. And Tassie still is a very fond memory for me, Mount Wellington, all those beautiful uh, places. But, Nick, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Anyone who wants to sort of tap into Nick, they're, they're welcome to, to find him, explore his books. I highly recommend that. Um, thanks again, Nick, um, for joining us. Oh, you're today. welcome. Thanks All for right. having me. Thank you.